0: Listen on for the first installment of our Q&A, the questions asked by you guys and answered by us, rather than the usual chit-chat that we have. Uh, this one is all about neurological conditions, we've funneled through the questions onto our wheel, spinning it and seeing what comes up. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the Body Track Academy, created by EPs for EPs. We'll cover all
1: things clinical, business, and personal growth to help you and the exercise physiology industry reach its potential. If you enjoyed this episode and find something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, and tell your friends to check it out. If you haven't already joined the BodyTrack Academy on Facebook, look us up, join our community of exercise physiologists, and access more great content.
0: Alright, welcome associates. We are in a very special week called Q&A week. Thank you very much for putting your questions forward. Uh, This theme was all about neurological conditions and this is something that we'll be doing uh, once per quarter, per month perhaps, depending on how much you guys like this podcast, uh, on different conditions that we see here at Body Track. And it's really coming from the perspective of the practitioner and how they deal with it. So... Some questions are a bit more broad and some are very specific, but um, we've got our wheel in here and we're ready to spin and answer some questions. But I want to introduce uh, Holly, who you've probably heard on some podcasts before. Uh, She is interested and specializing in neurological conditions here at BodyTrack, and she's also doing some further studies in neurological conditions. So welcome, Holly.
1: Thanks, Dan.
0: Just let us know a little bit about what you're studying first.
1: So um, at the start of this year, I started studying a graduate certificate in neurological rehabilitation through Edith Cowan Uni. Um, So I'm currently uh, probably close to the two thirds of the way through. I've got one more subject to go um, next semester. So um, yeah, we've I've learned so much during the the course so far, and it's really opened my eyes to a lot more um, and made me realise. Like anything, what I don't know. (laughs) So it's very good for that side of things. Um and it's given me a lot of practical um tips on what I can do to help manage my clients across a range of different conditions. So
0: perfect. So as you can probably imagine, you guys are in good hands in terms of the questions being answered, um, considering Holly's experience and study at the moment. All right, Holly. Without further ado, we're going to spin the wheel and land on a question and do our best to sort of answer it, I guess. Spin away. Hear the clicking in the background. Okay. The question is, for neurological conditions that you see and the damage that can be caused uh, from that, what do you know or have you seen in your own clients in relation to that neurological damage and muscle wasting?
1: Yeah, so this is pretty prevalent, um, uh, I guess, thing to see with different neurological conditions. So often it is associated, you know, with um, muscle wasting as well, Um, whether that's due to uh, less innovation to those areas resulting in less ability for that muscle to be at its capacity or whether it's more in relation to that very specific neurological damage that can occur in things like or in conditions like stroke. Um, so that's probably where you see it most commonly, um but it's it's definitely seen in conditions as well with muscular uh, sorry, um, multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Um, I do see it in Parkinson's, but it's not as clear cut as okay. what it is in um, stroke. Uh, in other conditions like CP, um, you probably do notice it if if you have someone who's hemiplegic and one side is more affected, you will notice it more. Um, but stroke is probably where you do see that mostly. So if someone has, um, been affected on one side of their body or potentially one limb, um, obviously if there is neural damage resulting in immobilization or very limited Mm. movement, um, there's going to be muscle damage or muscle wasting associated with that. The other area actually that I probably have seen this in a little bit is, um, with, brain injuries. So same association with stroke. Um, If there's immobilization or limited movement there, Mm. you're going to have associated muscle wasting.
0: And with that, do you see it in terms of like, is there a report that comes from a specialist about it from an appointment they might have, or is it quite visible sometimes? Or do you note it from, I guess, the the functional demands are reduced in terms of your testing or, you know, there's less weight that they could do. How do you Mm -hmm. kind of see Maybe the first signs of it? Probably a combination
1: said. of everything you just said there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, we don't really get a lot of information a lot of the time mm. from um, other specialists or from you know, other people that they might have seen unless requested a lot of the time. And I do usually try and request that, but I've already most of the time completed an initial assessment by that stage. So during the initial assessment, if it's visible, obviously you notice that there is muscle wasting there, like with any other, um, sort of assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you are probably mostly noticing it in your subjective assessment. So they'll probably tell you, you know, one side's weaker Mm -hmm. or I have, um, less, um, muscle mass in my calf. And that's what help what limits my walking. Yes. Often yep. physios will do some testing. And if I'm working in a good multidisciplinary team, the physios will, um, provide me with some insight into that as well. Right. But yep. it's usually most obvious with assessment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. And is there much education that you provide to clients around it as well? Because, you know, I, I can see an example where you're progressing along with the client and then, um, you might see that they're plateauing with perhaps the weight that they're lifting or the movement that they're trying to perform or Mm. they're getting worse. And how do you navigate that with the education for that client?
1: It's a good question, but it very much depends on the condition. So, Mm. um, you know, for, for a lot of people, we actually just need to be trying to make sure that they're doing enough volume and enough, enough repetition that they are able to maintain or improve that yeah. the capacity of that muscle. Definitely. Um, uh, a big part of that comes into play in home exercise programs. So making sure that they understand and are educated on how much they actually need to be doing in that home program. Right. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's very dependent on the condition in terms of how much you're going to educate on that. Mm. Um, mm. In other conditions, like for people I see with cerebral palsy, if there's a really clear difference from one side of their body to the other there's going to be difficulties in actually getting that capacity from one side to the other due to tone, spasticity, um, contractures in their, in their joints. So it's, yeah, just a matter of, um, I guess, understanding what capacity that's to and Mm. then educating appropriately from there. Yeah.
0: And I guess as well, part of that is slowing the rate of decline in in those situations as well, which we, which we do know for other, other conditions, not just neurological as well. All right. We're going to spin the wheel again and get to our next question. Oh, that was that a good was a spin good that time. Well done. <laughs> well done. All right. Okay. Are there any considerations that you have in programming for a neurological uh, client that would be different to, say, like a healthy population or someone with uh, a cardiovascular issue? Uh, I think this question's more so around um, often often we've, uh, we get people who I guess think there has to be all this different kind of exercise prescription and programming and um, uh, ways of programming for a new, neurological client. Um, is that the case? I know it's going to be condition-specific, but is that the case in what you've learned, especially with the studies that you're doing now, or is it pretty similar to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what we know about exercise for, for anybody?
1: Yeah. I think more broadly... Um, we shouldn't think that there are huge differences in what we prescribe as exercise to the neurological populations. Really, there are, you know, there is some evidence to support particular types of movement for particular conditions, but generally speaking, we're trying to build someone to a capacity where they're able to meet the exercise physical or physical activity guidelines. So we need to be building them to a means to get there. Obviously, when you have more you know, specific conditions. If we're thinking of someone who might have suffered a spinal cord injury, um, there's considerations around what exercise is safe to be completing in a wheelchair, Mm -hmm. Um, what exercise uh, considerations need to be taken in terms of their um, skin health, so reducing the risk of pressure sores, being mindful of um, blood pressure changes, those sort of things. So safety considerations are really important in that regard. Um, If we think more specifically about like, is there a big difference in exercise prescription for a particular population? I would say one of the most, um, or the one that really stands out is around Parkinson's disease. Yeah, that's where, yeah, yeah, that's where there's been more specific research into um, like power Mm. and more, um, that higher uh, power movements, Mm. um, more so than anything else. But uh, in saying that, The exercises, well, some of them are a little bit different, but it's more about how you do the exercise rather than them being a different type.
0: Yeah, but I guess it would be, and what I've seen as well, is it is different to your conventional program. That would be, you know, maybe three lower limb, three upper limb. Yeah, good point. It is a combination of both, isn't it? Like upper limb, lower limb.
1: Yeah, it's very... um, Powerful movement. Yeah, involves the whole body. It's very dual task orientated. There's a lot of power in that focus. Yeah. where a lot of the time, getting someone to do low reps and high sets, taking mm. a lot of rest. So yes, there are a lot of considerations, but it's very dependent on the the condition. So, yep. um, I guess the take home with that message though is, you're really just trying to provide someone with an exercise capacity to reach their goals and what they're trying to work yeah. on. So it's, it's whatever that person is wanting to achieve. And then you're working out from there, how am I going to help that person mm. to get there? Yep. So there's no
0: secret sauce and no, special program. There is the best thing for this, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yes. It all comes back to what we know already with exercise and, exactly. and tailoring it to the client, don't we?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So just making sure you're getting a little bit of everything in there, strength, mm-hmm. balance, mobility, cardiovascular exercise,
0: etc. cetera. Yep. And one of the other things that, um, if you ever do get to come by Body Track, you might actually hear Holly's Parkinson group being very loud yeah. and shouting because vocal is yep, another part exactly. of it too. So I know in your groups you do quite a lot of of movement with shouting or mm. you know trying to project and say
1: exactly say
0: things very clearly. So um, always a good sight and. Fun time lots of fun, in the Parkinson's yeah. group.
1: L- loud music and loud voices. Yeah, <laughs> ideally. <laughs> um,
0: just want to touch on one other thing that came to my mind. Then dual task mm. exercises. Um, yeah, that's probably again, a bit more bro- neuro specific. Yeah, I guess. a bit broad in terms of obviously populations that you might do that for. But what kind of evidence or benefit have you seen from clients you've seen?
1: Yeah, I guess dual task can be utilised with lots of different um, uh, different populations. But where we probably most commonly see that um, prescribed is with Parkinson's patients, um, people who have Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, we also, or I also use it quite a bit with my, um, FND patients. So functional neurological disorder patients, um, because there is often a large cognitive association with that condition for Mm -hmm. some people. It's, it's very varied. So it depends on the person. Um, And then sometimes in MS as well, it can be really helpful to use um, like your cognitive and motor dual task exercises. So essentially it is just combining, you know, multiple things at once when you're doing Mm. a movement. So you're not only challenging that physical side, but you're also challenging that mental side as well. So getting them to be distracted or focusing on something else or thinking of a certain thing while they're doing a movement Mm. or two different types of movement um yep. as well so there's quite a bit of um there's a few papers on it particularly in parkinson's disease um with dual task i think i actually posted a couple to the academy a while ago
0: just about to say flick back yeah. on the academy and you'll see there's a few papers and even demonstrations of what mm. you do for yeah, um, dual yep. task yeah so yeah. by all means go on the facebook uh body track academy page and you can see some different exercises there all right another spin of the wheel there holly Oh, yes. Now, this one's a little bit left field of a neurological condition, but very hot topic at the moment. Uh, Concussion in particularly young amateur athletes. This one is actually posted from... uh, I know the person who posted it was their uh, daughter who actually had um, a a head knock from being in soccer and had a concussion and everything is fine with them now. But his question was, what's the long-term... Kind of impact, or what's the return to sport protocol, and what what's out there at the moment for young amateur athletes? Mm. Because there's heaps of investigation into it for um, long-term damage, and particularly rugby league players and the NFL. They're looking at um, what the damage is from those repetitive concussion, um, repetitive hits to the head, or concussive episodes. Um, but what what's the science at the moment? Uh, so this is a little bit out of probably the neurological stuff, but we're going to try and tackle it. Um, we'll
1: tackle it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Holly, what is your thoughts on it at the moment or what have you seen around in terms of uh, concussion young yeah, athletes? Yeah, so
1: look, to be honest, the most experience I have probably have is with myself, um, <laughs> more so than with um, clients. I've played yeah. quite a bit of soccer in my lifetime and have had a number of concussions as a result of that. Mm, right. Um, and look, growing up, I never really thought much about it. I know my mum was always a bit worried about it when I'd get a concussion, but it was just one of those things that we you did and you went back to training the next week and it was all all right. Yep. But there's a lot more coming out about it now. And my, um, I guess, in terms of EP side of things, most of my education has come from a tutorial that we did at Body Track, where we had one of our local physios who works upstairs, Tim Duffy, come and... Um, do a a presentation on concussions and he works quite a bit or he had seen quite a few patients or young athletes Mm. who had had concussions. So from, from that is where I have a lot of my knowledge. Um, and I guess the biggest take home from that, that I got was around the return to sport protocols. Mm. Um, I do remember a lot around that different phased approach. So starting with complete rest. So actually not doing anything, um, for, until those concussion symptoms settled down. Yep. And those mm-hmm. symptoms were very varied as well. It wasn't just, you know, um, feeling a bit out of it and or it dizzy or something along those lines. There's mm. also those emotional changes that I remember from that tutorial as well. Mm. Um, difficulty with um, focusing, etc. There's a long list. Um, and then it was a slow return to aerobic exercise. Yep. I remember from there. And
0: it's quite slow too. Yeah. I remember because actually Tim came down and did, had a... Uh, post concussive, uh, client who we'd put on mm. the treadmill and it wasn't very, you know, no, wasn't running or anything really like gentle. that. It was pretty gentle and the symptoms that they were getting from that, uh, would determine about what their eligibility is for return to sport. Yeah.
1: So. And whether they go to that next stage. So mm. I just remember mm. it mainly being a staged approach. So you went through the phases of rest to aerobic exercise yep. to then including a little bit of movement um, and then etc. I think there's like six stages or something like that. Yeah. But each mm. stage you cannot move on to the next one until you have... Um, had 24 hours post that without symptoms, yep. I think it was. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's probably where most of my knowledge has come from and it could be worth us doing a podcast with Tim because he's quite um, knowledgeable in that area and has had a fair mm. bit of experience.
0: Absolutely. And considering that it is, a as, a, a, as we said at the start, a hot topic in, in terms of um, uh, particularly amateur at the moment because there's a lot of concussions mm-hmm. that are probably happening at Saturday, school sport, yep. uh, at Saturday morning sport with their kids. Um and yeah, we don't really know what the long-term effects are mm. or to what level, but the there is some some guidelines in terms of return to sport, as Holly was mentioned. Um and that one I will put in the show notes the con- the treadmill test is actually the administration of the Buffalo concussion treadmill test, mm-hmm. um, which is also on the brain injury Australia dot org dot AU site. And there's also some post-concussive um disorder questionnaires that can be used in particular one is the Rivermead post concussion symptoms questionnaire so that's another one that i'll post in the show notes um which can give you guys some guidance about you know if you do have that amateur it doesn't even have to be uh, the questions around young amateur because that was applicable to the client but this is also for you know any anybody that goes and um out on the sport on the weekend and, and experiences a concussion this this can apply so uh, I'll pop those in the show notes and yeah, watch this space for a podcast with Tim. All right. Probably have time for two more questions. So spin the wheel again. Oh, it's the same. You've done that one. Let's <laughs> no. go again. Two. All right. Ah, yes. Neuroplasticity.
1: Hot Something. topic.
0: Again. Yes, of course. So something that we you probably read about or have been taught about in, in university, neuroplasticity is great, positive thing, great changes, things that can happen. The question here is, are uh, any negative effects from long-term neuroplasticity or I think it might be called maladaptive plasticity, neuroplasticity? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> correct. So, um, and I know that Holly has done a bit of... Um, uh, has this has been part of her course that she's been doing as well. So take it away, Holly. What's the long-term effects?
1: Yeah, so um actually the subject that I'm doing at the moment is literally called neuroplasticity and neurorehab. So perfect. It's quite relevant. <laughs> um, and a big exactly what you said, a big part of um neurological rehabilitation is actually also trying to minimise um the effects of what we call maladaptive plasticity. And maladaptive plasticity is exactly what you think it would be. It is the negative effects that occur with um, whether that's a disease, disorder um, or neurological acquired condition. So essentially that can be things like dystonia, that can be things like chronic pain, um, spasticity can be considered that, all of those um, things that you see that are I guess not ideal in terms of mm. um, the management of clients that you see with neurological conditions. So yes, there are negative long-term effects of neuroplasticity, which are termed maladaptive plasticity or maladaptive plastic changes. Um, and there are things that we can do to to do to do manage this. Sorry. So a lot of where our research or where our learnings were in in this subject was around. Um, Uh, chronic pain and dystonia Mm. and trying to still utilize the um, principles of neuroplasticity to, I guess, manage those sides. So we're not going to call it side effects, but manage those more negative changes. So Mm -hmm. um, chronic pain was a good one that we, there's obviously a lot lot more research into that. And then we looked a little bit at graded motor imagery for chronic pain. um, And that's something that's been around for quite a long time. Um, but is something that probably we don't all consider as much as we could um, for chronic pain, um, but it can be a really good way of providing some really low um, intensity graded exercise um, or movement, more so, um, to return to those. Um, movements without pain. So uh, the graded, yeah, graded motor imagery is definitely something to consider. We looked a lot at visual illusions and we looked a lot at mirror um, therapy as well. Um, And yeah, it's it's definitely something that's present and it's something that we have to consider. And there's a lot Mm. more research that's happening into maladaptive plasticity. Um, And a lot of it is around trying to minimize those effects.
0: Yeah, right. Fascinating. Then I'm going to go the other side of it. Another question we had that as I can see on the board here is when is when is neuroplasticity at its greatest effect?
1: Yep. So um, this is an interesting one because there's definitely a lot more research happening in a lot of different interventions and modalities, not only around um, exercise, but also around other things like um, uh, non-invasive brain stimulation and those sort of things as well. But where most of the research is at in terms of physical activity is actually in aerobic exercise. And a lot of that is just out of modes of actually being able to assess it and to mm. research it and test it. Um, and there are most, a lot of studies that are done on animal studies um, for aerobic exercise and the neuroplastic benefits of that. Um, but I think if we're going to go from evidence-based practice, aerobic exercise is the thing that is probably um, the most well-known and most prevalent yep. driver for neuroplasticity at this stage. Right.
0: Great. Yep. Uh, then the last question I have, you can spin the wheel one more time. It should land on the one that I'm thinking of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in your practice with the neurological clients that you see, have you seen functional improvements in patients with Conditions that we most commonly associate with um, a a rate of decline. So this is things like MS or Parkinson's where a lot of the time, the majority of research is around, I guess, slowing the decline and we know that there is um, no cure for this. Another one, uh, sorry, mentioning MS is one in particular. But for clients that you've seen, anything where you've sort of seen the reverse of that or you know, their functional testing that you've done actually has improved Um, or perhaps there's been plateaus and not the rate of decline that, Mm. you know, they first presented with.
1: Yeah. Um, Yes, definitely. For MS and Parkinson's, there's a big space for us to be able to show improvements. And I actually probably see more functional improvements in those um, populations than we do see obvious decline, yeah, okay. um, particularly when you first start seeing someone and if they haven't really been an exerciser before, mm. you're still going to get those benefits that you get for anyone who has just started exercising. Yeah, so, it's
0: not like they, they're they uh, exempt from that no absolutely. change, is it? Yeah, that's right. So they
1: definitely still um, show a lot of functional improvements. I think where we really see those declines is if the, obviously if there's a relapse that occurs or if someone gets sick or if they're unable to... Participate in exercise for any number of reasons. Um, it can become a bit of a cascading effect. And that's when you do see those negative declines mm. occurring. Mm. Um, probably the space where, unfortunately, and it's a pretty awful condition, but something that we don't see as much or as obvious functional improvements are with the motor neuron disease or motor neuron populations, um, just because that rate of decline is a lot more significant. But it's not to say that there aren't actually improvements that do occur. And I think it's more about the small wins in those um, in those factors. So uh, yes, to answer that question, we definitely see functional improvements. And I'd be pretty yep. devastated if we didn't see functional <laughs> yeah. improvements after Indeed. all the hard work that they put in. Yep. Um, but as you said, uh, we also have to make sure that we um celebrate the small wins and celebrate uh the maintenance as well. Yeah. Definitely. Um and yeah. reducing that rate of decline and, and um yeah, making sure that mm. we're we're providing that, that feedback.
0: Yeah. And I think one thing that I can add to that is the more that you do focus on that, I like how you put that small win of even maintaining mm. um, because, you know, they're also most likely um, having to deal with a general aging physiological yes. adaptations as well Absolutely. as their conditions so
1: and with lots of neurological conditions it's that accelerated aging is a concept yeah. that's definitely been um, pushed a lot more recently
0: yeah so celebrate those wins of maintenance um, it may seem like you're celebrating a draw in some ways if you put it into a sport co- context but that means they're still able to do you know what they're able to what their goals were and that they est- established initially in their and yeah. their functional tasks so that is never to be overlooked all right, Holly, that does us for the questions for our first Q&A on neurological conditions. Thank you all to put who put questions forward. Thank you very much for your time, Holly, in terms nice. of answering the questions. Um, lots of new evidence and research coming through from what you're studying as well. Um, and it can only get better with another subject to go. That's right. All right, associates, we will do another one of these in the due course. But for now, listen, like, love, share, whatever you need to do to get it out there. And we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks. Thanks for listening to the BodyTrack Academy podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and found something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, and tell your friends to check it out. If you're not already in the BodyTrack Academy on Facebook, look us up. Join our community of exercise physiologists and access more great content.